Welcome to North Beats from North Beach. I'm your host, Corey Luna, chatting with people behind electronic music. And today, we chat with Drew Waters for episode 9. We met at United Recording in Hollywood as I was in town for Synthplex in Burbank that weekend. Drew starts his career in jazz, and from there has gone on to be a professor and a VP for many labels, recording and producing music for professional musicians. Today, we chat a little bit about his musical history and we get into a bit of his contemporary work with analog synthesizers and drum machines. This is, I think, I think uh, Drew, you're going to be episode nine. Oh, right yeah. On. And, um, so thank you very much for uh, agreeing to do an interview with me for this podcast. It's a real treat to come out here today. Yeah. And, uh, give me a, let's start out with a little bit of background on your, in your music. Yeah, so let's see. Um, let's see, before I, before I was doing this, like I was, uh, I was VP at Capitol Records and EMI and UMG, and I ran the studios and archives at Capitol. And uh, before that, I was a professor. I, I taught music at the CSU system in Monterey, and uh, taught at State University of New York, SUNY, SUNY Plattsburgh as well. Wow. And yeah, I taught recording and um, theory, performance. Before that, I have a, I have a, um, a dual PhD from NYU uh, in performance and composition. Uh, bass performance and then you know external composition stuff and then went to the Eastman School of Music in Rochester before that and uh, my undergrads in sociology actually and uh, before that I dropped out of high school because I couldn't stand it like I hated high school didn't I had no idea what was going on and I, I was playing young I started playing when I was 14 so that sort of led to my high school demise as well because I was doing so many gigs and stuff but yeah basically I'm a bass player and I still play I still do gigs around <laughs> town and, uh, that was ma- my first instrument too. Yeah, and yeah, mainly play jazz standards, and um, still record a lot um, at my my studio, at my at, at um, or in my studio. And then I got into drum machines and stuff, where someone gave me like an old six oh six for twenty bucks back in the <laughs> that's day. That's a great. That's a great price. Mine cost a hundred. Yeah, exactly. They're yeah. still pretty cheap. Like people. If more people understood like how amazing those hi hats sound on that thing, I think that the prices would go up. But um, and I used it for a metronome. That was a glorified metronome. That's all yeah. it was. And then I started to fall in love with the sound of it because I just put the six oh six through my one of my amplifiers and practiced my bass stuff on it. And um, but then uh, then I started to like really like the sound and sort of sort of started investigating more into drum. Like, I really started collecting drum machines first. And just playing with them and syncing them together back in the day, like before, right on the edge of when DinSync became MIDI in the mid '80s, and then um, then I started to collect uh, more synths. But then it was hard for me. I, didn't, I never talked about it or never recorded um, you know, uh, much because I was a jazz musician, so it was hard for me to reconcile oh. you know, playing like organic jazz sounds and improvising and studying that. And all my friends and colleagues that did that with, you know, drum machines and, th- and synths were seen as, you know, evil at the time. So I just kind of kept it in the closet for a long time. 
then after you know years of doing this, I thought, well, who cares anymore? So then I ended up getting, like I have a 909, an 808, 707, 606, 505 that I never used. I never made a 404, and a TV 303. And I started with a TT 303, and the sound was cool, like those clones. But then I ended up getting a TB 303, then a 101. Then I always had like the usual, um, I had a couple of, I think I had an M1, Korg M1? Right? And that like box, like sort of rack synth as well. Synths as well. Mm-hmm. But there's something about this nostalgia and all those sounds as to why, that's why I kept on collecting these these things. And, and I don't have a huge collection. There's like certain boxes, I just love the sound. Like it probably reminds me of when I was 14 years old. Plus, I love the way they all age as well. They all age differently. So, Which synths have been uh, holding up better through time? The 303 and the 101, yeah. mainly. Yeah, the 101... <clears throat> Oh, the, the SH-101? Yeah, SH-101. Yeah. I, saw, yeah. I saw it mine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're awesome. They're right? beautiful. Yeah, they're really cool. The oscillators are, like, all kind of, like, wacky. It's hard to keep the thing in tune sometimes, and they drift. Yeah. But I don't mind sort of, like, finessing it to bring it back to where it should be. Um, you know, I really should put a little work in. I'd had some work in, on it. There's a guy named Jason Soul up in Oakland. Do you know that guy? I don't know Jason Soul. Um, I had to... What was it? So last year, my 606 was going down, and I didn't know where to take it because I had never had my stuff repaired or, or serviced. So I reached out to Nathan Moody, and he said, "Go." He said, "You need to go to um, this old synth, oh. and it's a, uh, I think it's thisoldsynth.com. Uh, the, the guy out there, and he's in. I think he's in. He's in the South Bay. Can't remember if it was oh. n- not San Jose exactly. It was." Um, Campbell, he's in Campbell. Oh, so yeah. I just okay. mailed it to this guy Chris out there, and he had it done in like a day. He did a full test on it, sent me all the, he emailed me all what he did, sent out a printout, you know, and it was, uh, I think it was the power source that just had to be yeah, taken out, and he cleaned the whole thing, and yeah, it cost about a hundred bucks, but you know, I I bought the thing for a hundred bucks too, so yeah. I could I could justify that, not yeah. a big deal. That's and, a good investment. And got it right back to me. Yeah. But tell me about um, the SH101 and and. Uh, in, in Oakland, you were telling me about. Yeah, there was. I can't remember. Um, I can't remember the, the name of this the place, but Jason Soul was a proprietor. It was in this cool little group of shops in Oakland, and um, he worked on my three hundred three. He did the MIDI mod on it because it couldn't oh, stand. Cool. I couldn't stand wrestling with it after all. Like it, it was great, but like I'm not a purist. I just want to get to the music and the sound. It doesn't affect the sound. It just affects how you control it, which is cool. I haven't made that jump yet for my my six oh six. Yeah, it's I'm getting it modded. Oh yeah, the yeah. Quicksilver mod. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there there's that, and there's also the uh, Devilfish mod. Oh yeah, which right. I've I've seen, but um, not not in person. I've just seen like you know videos of people having it modded, and so you can put MIDI in it and fun stuff like that. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So yeah, because I still use like a MIDI, um, MIDI to DinSync, and CV converter. Like Roland makes like a, a small box that does it really well. That's, cool. Yeah, it's been super reliable. And they all speak to each other. It's like DIN, CV, DINSYNC, MIDI, and USB, like all in one box, like all these protocols. So I'm happy that they're still, Roland is still looking backwards while they're you know, making new gear. But um, yeah, so this thing, I, I started hooking them all up and then doing like ironic covers of 
rock tunes, or I just started with my own stuff, and I thought it'd be funny to, to cover, you know, different tunes or different pop tunes or something. I was just posting it on Instagram. That I didn't think I'd get much of a reaction, but then people, you know, people were into it. And they started making requests, and yeah, so it's been fun. It's been really cool. I've really been, you know, as you know, synthhead myself. Of I just love the sound of the of old synthesizers from the eighties and seventies and what you're doing with, you know, doing the cover songs has been very enjoyable. Yeah. And I I was really impressed, I'm always really impressed when you're able to do the vocal track with a synthesizer. Oh, yeah. That's right. phenomenal stuff. Yeah. Because I have one of those really old Roland vocoders, the two RU, the two, like the rack thing, the huge VS something 350, V something something 350, I think. And uh, so I use that, or I pull up these really old vocal sounds from the S330 is a 12-bit sampler I have like three nice. yeah do you know those ones I don't check it out you can get them I have three of them because like they're freaking super temperamental mm. but make sure that you, this is the secret after like all these years of the thing crashing constantly is that there's a guy that runs like an S330 Roland sample site and he he gave me the uh, latest OS which is probably made in like 87 or something but without the latest one it crashes so it's all loaded on three and a half inch diskette, which is great. It takes like you know a minute and thirty seconds to load, <laughs> like one you know yeah, two seconds sample. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. But I love the sound of that thing, and and they're old. They're they're old twelve bit samples on on diskette, and uh, so they sound you know suitably um, gritty, and uh, like I like the the low resolution of that so mainly because it's something that just reminds me of you know the samples you used to hear back then so it's cool you can get them on like craigslist for like 50 bucks really yeah it's like one ru and uh if you can get it with the discs it's even better cool if it's possible but yeah are you have you been producing uh, your own albums recently or or in the past yeah in the past like i, I did uh like i i there's a I have a bunch of stuff up on Bandcamp that I haven't like renewed. I did like a, a six oh six three oh three album, and I think that was it. It was just those two boxes. Oh yeah, I did hear yeah. those. Those yeah. were fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah think, it's just that one album you got up there. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, I did show you that. I think a yeah. while ago. Um, I may have just you know, trolled you and just found them. Yeah, yeah. But I may have done. But I did hear them. Oh, and, that's funny. And, and oh. I do like them. They're really fun, and I'm hoping that maybe you might do some more like that sometime. Cause I know I should. They're fun. Yeah. Because, yeah, I got a lot of original content that way. Then I also have, like, a lot of stuff that I did with the drummer where it's just bass and drums, but then I overdubbed, like, piccolo bass on top of that, which sounds a lot like guitar. I think I got a trumpet player named Shane Ensley from a, a band called Kneebody. He did some trumpet stuff on that album as well. But, yeah, I got to get back more into that stuff because, like, I love... Comp I still compose, but I should, like, take it a step further and, like, realize those compositions through recordings. So... That'd be cool to hear, man. Um, yeah. So, with with writing music now, are you more busy with you know doing recording in, in the studio with other musicians with you know four musicians, or are you doing more work at home now? Yeah, mainly in my studio. Like it's it's more more like it's it's hard for me to if I get together with people, it's 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 for like limited rehearsal, and then the rest of the time is just the actual gigs. So it's hard to get together with people just to you know, collaborate and experiment and rehearse stuff towards recording, but I was thinking about that a couple of days ago, like I have all these these charts I'd like to do, like sort of live recordings with that because it's, you know, it's it's LA or California, it's, it's easy to find really good musicians to realize that those those compositions. 
but mainly it's it's easier for me to like work super late at night after I get back from the studio to you know to do stuff um yeah and, and with those boxes this is sort of like a never ending uh source of ideas because those boxes mm. are so you know they're strange but they're inspirational so it's funny I was talking to a kid a couple of weeks ago he was talking about he just DM'd me through Instagram and uh, there's oh there's also this other guy that I provide sample packs for like he just he'll let, he'll ask me to sample the 909 so I give him a whole bunch of samples and he, he goes off and does cool things with them and so he sent me a track a couple of days ago I said dude you got yourself a 909 he goes no those are your samples but it sounded like the way he programmed those samples it sounded like a drum machine like it sounded wow. great yeah it sounded really good Tell me a little bit about uh, creating a sample pack because that's something I've always been interested in doing myself, and you know I'm, I'm I've oh. never done it and I've never and I'm not really sure how to go about it. Yeah, I do it like the most shit basic way possible. Like I just basically I'm I go from sound to sound, mute all the other sounds except for the bass drum, and then change the bass drum sound for the dude like four or five different versions, like just different kicks as I'm dialing through because because it's a, a rotary pot. Like theoretically, you have like an un- unlimited palette of sounds so I, I just gave him like like four or five sounds each where they're adjustable on the nine on the 909 so I, I just play four or five bass drums some snares some toms hi-hats open and closed and then I'd give him it in one long audio file so he would have to chop up the transients oh. and he would have to put those trans like to the you know um, sort of fade ins fade outs normalize them that sort of thing and then put those in his whatever sequencer he was using and uh yeah whenever people ask i just it's it's a two-second job for me to do that <laughs> just to run sounds through it like there's this other kid talking about sample packs and comparing he was saying you know he likes the sound of my 909 but my 909 is is not how it should sound the thing is like you know decades old now like 30 40 years old it's not supposed to sound like that it's it's like it, you can't compare it to how it used to sound it's like become something else so he was asking, what sounds better, this sample pack or my 909? And I said, technically, your sample pack sounds better than my 909. And he couldn't get that through his head. <laughs> and I said, well, think about it. Like, when those sample pack, the people that made those packs, like Roland, for example, if they have like a 808 emulation, they go around and collect the best 808s they can find mm-hmm. and the best bass drums from those 808s. And they sample them, and that's what you get in your pack. But I said, what's the difference between my, me putting my 808 into Pro Tools and sampling it. And I said, mine's not the best sound. I said, therefore, yours sounds better than mine. Yours sounds more authentic than mine does, you know, as the capacitors and resistors and, you know, those boards start to, like, you know, age. Degrade. Degrade, yeah, you just don't get the original. They become their own sort of person, but you don't get the original sound at all. But he has in that pack is, like, probably closer to the original sounds than I have. Wow. Yeah, and if... A guy named Bobby Woods. He's a cool guy. Google Bobby Woods. Okay. But he he brought. Um, we meet every now and then. He brings like these synths to. The, it's crazy. He brings like little synths to the restaurant where when we meet. And he brought in the the eight oh eight. Um, that reissue that um, Roland came out with the little. Oh yeah. Uh, was it TR zero eight? Was it called? I think so. Like yeah. Last, last year, I think it was. Yeah. And they also did a. Uh, they also redid uh, the SH one hundred one as I think the SH zero one. Yeah, and it has like four voices. Yeah, right? it's pretty fantastic. Fucking it's crazy. All, it's all digital. It's fun. I got to play around with my fr- uh, my friend. Picked up the the TR zero eight last year, and I actually did a 
uh, at home I recorded that with the 606 just because I own it and I did a comparison and I had both um, you know the the uh, the kick drum going at the same time and, yeah. and the same pattern the hard part was trying to get them to sync because that you can't really really sync the 606 exactly I just had a problem with that and I mm. couldn't really entirely figure it out I just had to do it by ear pretty much yeah. oh use because the din sync the sync out the back right you can send sync in or sync out and then you can actually have that control the 606 with a with a MIDI to um, din sync converter oh and well, it, I'll try it, that it, it locks okay great so that's how all my stuff is locked together I remember reading about you know doing some research on the 606 and saying that you know in a lot of research it said that the 606 it's uh, its own timing is a little different a little off so it's hard to it was hard to get it to work with other instruments that way but but I will try that yeah because MIDI the din sync triggers it like every time it's it locks for every single pulse okay right so maybe the timing itself in the box is a little off but when you when you send the the protocol to it it'll sync instantly okay like repeatedly. Try that. yeah it's really cool and you get these like little MIDI the din sync converters on eBay they're like little tiny boxes those work hmm. or you can get the Roland little it's like this big it has like the has CV MIDI din sync and USB all in one so it's like that's very useful yeah CV goes back to like I don't know <clears throat> half a century ago but um, yeah so the great thing about those boxes is that people find them ways find ways to keep them alive and keep them talking to each other so what characters have you found in your 909 and, and other synths that have uh, aged over the years and how their the quality is not the same as it was when it came out? Um, yeah. Do you think it's, you know, yeah. you know, and I know it's degrading, but is it? do you think it has an interesting character to it? Yeah, I think like the 606, if you put it, you know, if you EQ the 606, it has a super thick bass drum and no one knows that. No one talks about that at all. But the only way to, to get that out is to like put a, you know, to boost the, boost the low end on it and the thing has a, a giant bass drum sound mm -hmm. but just in, in the, the mix of the entire thing which is like a really low output to begin with same thing with the original three, the TB303 has a super low output but the bass drum on the, on the 606 sounds amazing um, I don't think that my 808 has, has um, sort of aged as well as my other stuff at all really yeah I don't like the sound of it anymore wow um, I hardly use it but uh, yeah, the bass drum sound is like, it's. I just wish wish there's more flexibility in that. I mean, that's what the 909 does. It's like a step up from the 808, where there's like you can actually control different parameters, and em envelopes and EQ, um, on the the bass drum and the and the snare drum sounds, which is awesome. Yeah, the the 808. I'm just not, I'm just not digging on it. Like I don't like the bass drum. It's like sacrilegious to say it out loud, but. <laughs> You know, just don't like the bass drum sound or snare sound anymore. That's why I stick to the 909 so much. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's something to say about that, just because, you know, it's, it is used everywhere. Yeah, you know, yeah it's it, just it personal was... preference. Okay. I like the original sound of it, for sure. Yeah. I just don't like the sound of mine at all. Yeah, just yeah, that one, you're saying, just really hasn't held up? No, I don't think so. Yeah, maybe I need it. Maybe I should swap it up for a different one, or I should just get the new one. Uh, speaking of the SH-101, or the, the reissue, to have... Like the 101 that I have, it's like, it sounds good. I use it all the time, but I'd freak out if I could have four voices. That's why that new small one, the reissue, looks so cool. Have you tried it out? Uh, just like just in um, that synth place over in Burbank. Um, oh, is that Perfect Circuit Audio? Yeah, I tried yeah. it over there. It was cool. 
Yeah. It sounded great. It, it, it's pretty nice. I yeah. like it too. Um, I so I borrowed my friends and it's it's fun. I really like it, but I was concerned about maybe trying to play a show with it because my buddy and I were you know we're playing shows up in up in the the Bay Area around San Francisco and Oakland, and I was thinking I I want to use it, but at the same time I'm not sure if it's going to have you know enough output to really you know fill the room like I could with the 606. Oh yeah. So I'm a little concerned about it. I haven't really tried it out, but. When I was doing my, my test at home with the 808 and the, uh, the, uh, 08 and the 606, I was still getting a better bass drum out of the 606 compared to the, the 08. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Oh, that's awesome. And I was thinking, you know, maybe it might be because the, um, I can't quite remember, but I think that the output on the 08 might be uh, might be eighth inch jack instead of quarter inch now. Because I think they brought, it's such a small box now, yeah. and I think they brought even you know the outputs down into eighth inch instead of quarter inch. I think you get a better sound out of quarter inch. But yeah, possibly. I, I could be wrong about that. Yeah, possibly. Huh, that's interesting. You know, more tests to be, no, more tests to be run. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's gonna be fun. Right. So, um, what else were you work? What were you working on in the in the eighties? Like you doing more jazz and things like that? Yeah, in the eighties, let's see, I was. Mainly bass stuff. I just I was yeah. doing a lot of blues, a lot of jazz, and the only synth stuff I had was uh, I used to have um, a K four, Kawaii K four. That was the, the synth I had. Was Before, that with a sampler? No, yeah. it was just like a straight up, like a simple synth. Um, yeah, Kawaii K four, the six oh six, and a. Uh, Really simple MIDI program on a super old computer, <laughs> like a, an old like PC or something like that, mm. with like a MIDI a MIDI car, or a, a sound sound designer. What was it? Sound Blaster? Sound Bra Sound Blaster Pro uh, card, an audio card, and it's some sort of MIDI conversion as well. It was clunky, and there was like a really simple MIDI piano scroll grid used to use. And then put that all into four track, like four track mm -hmm. cassette. I still have the four track cassette. It's like an old um, Tascam. Yeah, those are still mark. those are still used a lot today. Yeah, the brown, not the blue ones, the brown ones. Oh, okay. Like even before the the blue ones, I still see the blue ones around. Those are more common. Yeah, I saw a blue one at uh, this guy named Daniel Roland from a company called Lander, and he mm -hmm. had for for effects for making effects, he has this old four track tape thing it's like mounted in his studio like it's used all the time it was really cool but yeah an old Tascam the 606 and a Kawhi K4 that was it I used to do a ton of shit with that were you, um, at the time with, with this equipment were you, you, were, you, were you rigging or just playing at home oh just playing at home like, and mainly used it for like compositional purposes so I'd write charts realize them in MIDI listen to them that way just write music that way were you uh were you uh, producing it as like your own music, or you'd use you're using it for other artists? Yeah, actually, like there's a I wrote um, a bunch of music for a guy named um, for a band called Jack Soul, a guy named Hayden Neal, who passed years ago in some sort of tragic accident. But uh, yeah, like I had a like record deal when I was in my twenties, and songs still did really well. I still get royalties from that music. Cool. Which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, what was was that a, under just your name at the time, or was that under a band name? Yeah, the band was called Jack Soul, and um, there's a song called Unconditional, and uh, I wrote it as as an apology to somebody, 
but then I took it and used it as lyrics, and the song the song did great. This wow. is in Canada. It did really well, and um, and then as as ripped off most of the royalties from the guy. So yeah, make sure you follow that metadata like really co- really closely and, and rightful ownership because, you know, it could have been making like probably eight times what I'm making now from that song. Wow. So that's another podcast. So okay, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, maybe that'd be fun. Yeah. Um. What? So, uh, what other bands were you? What other stories were from that time? You know, doing uh that band. Oh, you know, we just we wrote a bunch of tunes and we shopped around to record labels by hand, like just going door to door, basically, like begging for, you know, um, meetings, and we got meetings, and um, yeah, it was like we were twenty one, so we didn't know the difference that you're not supposed to do it that way, and it worked. So. Uh, who picked you up? Um, that was with, um, at the time, it was un- owned under BMG, I believe, BMG Canada. And then I think he went to Warner Brothers Canada after that um, with that first album. But I'm not sure who owns the, who the, the current owner is of that small catalog. But uh, that's kind of what got me into the whole record business is getting familiar with that that process. I wish I was a lot more familiar with it at the time, mm-hmm. but I hardly knew the the business portion of it. And um, yeah, so that kind of led between like doing that and doing the bass stuff. It kind of led me to what I'm doing now, which is cool. So and it's all kind of interrelated. So from being a, a, a you know a player a musician to record deals and getting more in the studio are you uh you're spending you're spending more more of your time is now in studio right uh not really like i I do like the administrative side of oh i'm in studio um for myself but also like what we do at viva the company's called viva sound we um we basically receive frontline projects from all the major labels and we verify that everything that the producer delivered was actually delivered and then we do metadata enrichment against all those files, including the, like the DAW files, all the mix types, and all the stems. And then we do long-term and short-term storage on multiple different um, storage mediums as well, including cloud. And uh, yeah, so we do like multiple frontline like new releases per day across London, New York, Nashville, and LA. And we work for all three major labels. So I'm assuming these are all mostly like a streaming uh, formats, or. No, it's like the actual. It's like Actually putting here's a hard drive of the album. Okay. So we listen. To, we have all the multi tracks of of those albums. Wow. So, of like really well known people, like once a day, really well known artists, once a day. You know, many times a day actually. Oh. Yeah. Are these being distributed in in a online or or they being go- going to print? Yeah, it's like all. It's like it's like brand new releases. So if you like Lady Gaga. It's like her, you know, you listen listen to those albums, like any, like it's all three major labels, so it's all the labels that those major labels, it's all the artists that those major labels release every single day. Wow. And so, yeah, that gets into all the form, like, you know, whether it's, it gets, like any new release would be printed on possibly CD, uh, vinyl, streaming, download, um, and distributed through all the digital service providers as well, like YouTube, iTunes, whatever. So it's any like any major release comes through us first. Wow. So yeah. 
is there have you seen a, a um have you seen a, a a resurgence or a flow where you're seeing more better sales in vinyl versus CDs now? Yeah, they kind of peaked. Like I think the the depth of the CD was like theoretically February two thousand sixteen, although they still make them. But that was like the end sort of. Right. You know that's where they kind of that's where the trajectory was going, and then vinyl picked up for a while and and it peaked, but still you know a lot of vinyl still being still being printed, but I think. You know, still like downloads and streaming are, you know, prevail. Although, like for a while, vinyl was the fastest growing music medium. It doesn't mean it was making the most, but it was the fastest growing music medium hmm. uh, for a long time. That was more like 2013 through 16. And I think they've seen like the, you know, the top end of that. So, and with, um, and with with artists, are you seeing more? Full albums or singles being uh, more widely consumed. Yeah, I think you know a lot of record labels. They might be putting out. They could still receive full-on albums, but they see the power of of the single. And a lot of them they're thinking, well, why do we have to put out a full album if people just like focus on a single anyway, and the rest of it's not really used. Yeah. So, but I get it. Like that the concept of a single, especially a single preceding the album, has been around since the '60s. Yeah, so, it definitely has. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, that's that's definitely something that, well, as as a, you know, an independent artist myself, that's not you know I some and many others like 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 us or some some people are doing singles, some people are doing full albums, and I went the full album route. I put my first album yeah. out just la you know at the beginning of this month, and and that was just something that I did for myself, and you know hope people enjoy it. Yeah, but it was you know did six tracks. It's only like thirty minutes. An EP, you know. It was uh, yeah, it's an EP. Right yes. on. It's great too. It was fun. Yeah, labels still do that where they'll send us a single, and then that single becomes like an EP. That that becomes an LP. Then it goes into remixes. So the lifespan of an of a like an album, so to speak, can be like eighteen months. So it's like A and R is divided into two categories: frontline and and catalog. So frontline is like a new release. After about eighteen months, which is lifespan, it reverts to catalog, which continue to exploit it or monetize on it in various ways. So, kind of service both both parts of A and R. Yeah. That's a back. That's a side of the music industry I really don't know anything about. Yeah. No, it's actually very fascinating to hear. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. It's and, a, and speaking of um, those studios, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, where we are today? Oh yeah, this is uh, United Recording, and um, this used to be called Ocean Way. Before that was called United. It was started by a guy named Bill Putnam, um, whose legacy is continued on by Bill Putnam Jr., who runs Universal Audio. Um, up in, it's kind of Santa Cruz. It's a city outside of Santa Cruz. It's not Redwood City. Um, it's a little, little is, town. Is Dartman L, I think. It's kind of Santa Cruz area, but yeah, okay. it's based around the area. area. Yeah. Oh, okay. So this is Studio A, which was like built up for Frank Sinatra back in the early '60s, I think, as he was leaving Capitol Records to start Reprise Records. And uh, our offices are up. Actually, our offices are Frank Sinatra's old office upstairs, which is cool. Wow. And so you tell me earlier that Frank Sinatra actually was recording in the studio. Here. Yeah. 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 So this studio is used like constantly. It's great that it's open today. It's empty right now, but. Yeah, it's like it's a legacy studio that's still really relevant, which is rare. But um, yeah, tons of artists still come through here all the time. That's really fascinating. Yeah. And we're and uh, tell me again about uh, about the the soundboard. 
Oh, this console? This yeah. It's focus right console. And it's uh, f there's four left in the world, and this is one of it's one of ten. There's only four left. Wow. Yeah, seventy two channels, and um, yeah, I don't think I I don't even know where the other three are, and the other six I guess have like been trashed or dumpstered or something. Wow, that's but that's yeah. unfortunate. And then what was this piece again over here? It's called the Fairchild Six Seventy. It's a stereo compressor, mm -hmm. and it's supposed to be like the the holy grail of compressors. Really. Yeah, it's wow. like the, I think there's like 20-something transformers or tubes, or but the things sound amazing, but that's like, arguably, like the whole Beatles, one of the main factors of the Beatles sound is that, and Frank Sinatra's sound is that as well. Wow. But uh, yeah, there's a ton of great gear in this place. Yeah, what are some of your favorite pieces in here that, that you've ever worked with or... Mm. or um, yeah, just the LA2As and 1176s, and a lot of those were made upstairs. I still have my old um, H330, not H330, no, H3000, the Ultra Harmonizer. I yeah, know, that great one. Yeah, I still have my distressors. I'm, wow. The stuff I have is mainly API stuff. I have a bunch of old API 312 um, preamps and Melkor GME20s and an API 24 channel console at my place but um, yeah I use that 16 by 16 converter mm -hmm. that Avid which mm -hmm. has been great I still use Pro Tools um, I'm stuck on Pro Tools 10 I think I'll leave it that way yeah I, I never got into Pro Tools I know that you know it's very much the industry standard but um, I was always a I started using Logic back in maybe two thousand three. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I and never and I I liked the the format of it so much. I just kind of never went to anything else. Yeah. Even though I know there's a bunch of other stuff out there. There's Cubase and and many other things I can't think of at the moment. Oh, Logic comes <coughs> with some great stock, you know, plugins and synths and stuff. It's oh, yeah. amazing. It's really cool. I did a couple albums on Logic. I did a couple albums on Reaper. Sorry. No problem. Jeez. Yeah, how is Reaper? I, I really haven't uh, dived into it yet. It's great, man. It's like the the plugins look really ugly. They're not pretty at all, but they're amazing. And um, it's updated all the time. And it's, it was created in reaction to Avid, um, where it's like to emancipate the user from the, the, the consumer price point. And uh, so it's gear agnostic, so it can run through any gear, I'm pretty sure. And it's... Uh, Super, super small. Like fits on a thumb drive, but it's super powerful as well. Really? Yeah. That's a small program. Yeah, but it's it's really complex, and um, I don't think it really differentiates differentiates between like an audio file, MIDI file, bus master, um, MIDI. Did I say MIDI? But yeah, yeah. You can like whatever track you have, you just tell it what you want it to be. You don't have to create like a certain certain track it's a really cool concept hmm. and it's, it's really easy to edit sound it, I don't know if it sounds a certain way but it sounds fine to me but it's, it's the plugins that are really killing on it wow yeah okay. I've, heard, I've heard hundreds some, and hundreds of plugins I've been hearing some you know really great you know rapport on it just from my friends uh, a friend of mine is you know just t is taking uh, sound engineering classes at uh, Community College of San Francisco right mm -hmm. now and he's telling me that he's doing Reaper in there and, and even he is you know really impressed with, with that with that app yeah you can also skin it so it looks really cool 
Well, that's skins. That's yeah, nice. it's like dozens. I've seen dozens years ago. I don't know if I'm sure they still do. But I used to see dozens of skins, but I think that was a big thing in the aughts, like maybe late '90s into early aughts. You know, skins for everything was everywhere, yeah. and I don't really, I don't know, I never really paid attention to it. Yeah. I just, you know, because I just want to spend more time on actually using it instead of making it look pretty for myself. Yeah, totally. But yeah, it's cool to be able to customize them. Sorry, man. I drove drove to Napa and back yesterday. Like yeah, how was day. Napa? It's great. Beautiful weather. Yeah. yeah you were with uh, your girlfriend or? No, it was, it was for a memorial for oh. a friend of mine that died, like a neighbor. He was like an engineer. He was actually Sid Barrett's engineer in England back in the day. And then I moved from New York City to Napa, and he uh, he was my next-door neighbor. So really? he was a guitar player. We started doing gigs. We recorded all the time. I gave him a bunch of recording gear that I wasn't using anymore, and it was cool. And then his wife sent me like a box of cassettes that I transferred about a month ago. That the cassette cassette master so I spent like hours transferring these things I got to you know this cassettes held up they sound great wow what are we using for uh, conversion for the cassettes just the avid this thing the avid 16 by 16 wow so that's really nice. did it one t- 192.24 so yeah. she doesn't have to touch them again that's excellent yeah yeah it's yeah. cool you know, I apologize for uh, you know we were trying. I know we were trying to you know figure out how we can meet over this weekend. Yeah. As you know, I'm only I'm you know I'll be back in San Francisco by like five thirty p.m. tomorrow. Oh yeah. And um and I you know I didn't realize you're gonna be going up to Napa, but. No, it's uh, worth it. I'm glad we worked it out, man. Yeah. Yeah, it worked out really good. Yeah. Was, so I'm really happy that we were able to figure it out. Yeah. A little confusion, but uh you know I've been over at Simplex this whole weekend, and, and that's been a trip. Yeah. You know, a little, little haphazard, but it's uh it's all right. You know, been some really great panels. Yeah. So Thomas Dolby, little Thomas Dolby thing on Instagram, that was cool. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, his performance was phenomenal. Yeah, um, it was really fun. I just, I, it was kind of weird. So we were, you know, I'm, uh, I just did volunteer photography for the whole event, and there's been no uh, direction at all. No one's given me any, any saying, hey, I need you over here or there. Nothing. It's like, okay, I'm just gonna walk in. I've got a pass. I'm just gonna do whatever I want. And so I, w- I helped myself to every panel I could go to. Didn't really cover the the mo- I really didn't cover any of the um, the the shows just because by the time the shows were starting, I'd already been there since nine a.m. It's been a twelve-hour day already. I'm yeah. exhausted. I need to go home and rest. Yeah. So didn't really do the shows, but did do Thomas Dolby because on was it uh, on Friday I was in the I was in the very front photographing uh, uh, Tom Holkenberg's panel, and that was you know the biggest panel. It was that room was packed for for him, and there were two guys on stage. Um, there was a uh, the both journalists was a uh, Byron and Brian Byron Byron Burton and Max Grayson Gray or Grayson I can't quite remember his name. Um, very nice journalists and they had some great questions. I went up to them and said, you know, uh, really appreciate you guys having good questions for Tom. It was a lot of fun and I I just you know introduced myself said and they're like, are you here for are you a, are you a musician too? I said, yeah yeah I just put my album out and just doing this for fun to, you know, help network and, you know, kind of promote my own podcast and fun stuff like that. And, and they're like, okay, that's great, man. And then on Saturday, I'm sitting in the lobby after doing a panel and running around with my buddy out of San Francisco. And I'm just sitting there by the bathrooms and I see, uh, the journalist, uh, Byron, you know, kind of, kind of wobbling by. I think he'd had maybe one or two drinks and had a big smile on his face. We locked eyes. He's just sat right next to me. He's like, Hey man, what's going on? How you doing? And I'm like, good dude. What's what what what's up to you? He's like, so Tom can't be here for Tom, the Thomas. He's like Tom Holkenberg had to run off because so he can't be here for 
his tickets to go see the Thomas Dolby thing, and it was like a hundred bucks to, to go to the, the dinner thing because it was a big dinner and, and the performance. He said, um, "Do you?" And I got to run off. Do you? You and your friend want want his passes? Like, um, oh, sure. That's awesome. So yeah, so we got to sit. Even though he, even though Tom Holford wasn't there, we got to sit at his table and get a nice dinner, and I got the opportunity to photograph Thomas Dolby's performance there. Oh, right on. That's so, so cool. And, again, like, there's no direction. No one's telling me what to do, what not to do. So yeah. grabbed my camera, and as soon as Thomas came on stage, I just ran up right up in front and just, you know, just kneeled so I wouldn't be blocking one's view and just, you know, did the, the kind of, like, worm's eye view photos of Thomas doing his performance and, like, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 6 feet away from him. Cool. So oh, that's was, really cool. It was it was a great opportunity. It was a lot of, it was a really was a pleasure and yeah, he did for sure. a, he did a you know one the, the the set was beautiful. Everything he did was nice. He did a lot of you know uh, low key songs that he that he enjoys and he said I'm just going to do the songs that I like to do. Yeah. And of course he ended it with, you know, we um she blinded me with science of course, right. which was very fun, but he did a a, a cover off of uh, David Bowie's album Low as a tribute to him. Oh yeah. And yeah, I think everybody was touched. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, a bit of a genius, that guy, man. He's now a teacher, which I didn't know about, because I'm on... On the East Coast, right? Baltimore? Uh, I think, yeah. John Hopkins? John, Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins, yeah. yeah he's there. Sure. He's there teaching, and I'm not, I think he's also still living in England? I, I, I wasn't too sure, but it was kind of neat, because I went to his panel, and he talked about you know his you know work. You know, He did a little snippet about him uh, his, you know his past work and now he's teaching and, and that was really fascinating because I didn't know he was a teacher actually Yeah. but I'm really happy that he's doing that it's very cool a nice humble guy Yeah. and it was yeah it was very cool I didn't I didn't expect it yeah he started that a couple of years ago I think I remember reading about that yeah, it's really he, cool and he had this uh, he had, he had uh, he was showing slides of you know certain things and he showed his, his studio which is a boat it's just like on a boat it's not on the water it's like yeah. just on on the beach somewhere with a nice view of the ocean. Yeah. It's it's very pretty. Oh, right on. That's so cool. Yeah. Under where he is. That's awesome. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um here we go. Sorry. Sorry, I got, we got I got I got off track. No no, that's cool. I should probably is that enough content do you think? Forty minutes? That point's pretty good. Um is there anything else we could we could cover you you'd like to talk about? I think we covered it. Yeah? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Well, Again, uh, Drew, thanks for doing this. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for uh, you know, thanks for having me. This is really cool. I love doing stuff like this.